Hi everyone, my name is Hannah, my pronouns are they, them, you are once again tuned into a podcast on Queer Folk's favorite tunes, this is Queer Sounds. Today um, we're gonna get medical, because you know for a queer podcast it talks to a lot of you know trans folks, we hardly ever talk about the actual medical side of it all, also in part um, because the medical side of things kind of gets like oh kind of gets too much attention from like mainstream media so maybe that's why we shy away from it but that's an that's an entire conversation in and of itself that we will probably touch upon later but first without further ado today's guest the one the only davy hi there how are you good nice to meet you my name is davy ran i use they them and i'm a trans medical student which you are writing, um, you, you are writing a book about the entire medical um, issues regarding trans healthcare. What made you decide to write a book in the first place? Um, yeah, so my book, the working title right now is At Capacity. Um, and I was applying to medical school and I wanted to know what it would be like as a queer person um, because I knew surely it'd be different from what it's like being straight, especially with the history of medicalization of queerness but I didn't find any information on it. Everything I found is really focused on the patient uh, experience. And there was almost nothing from the provider's experience or from the student's experience. So I felt like I've learned so much being in the field at this time and queer health is growing and we have more trans people joining medicine than ever. um, And a lot more people just from the community working with the community, which is great. And I want to encourage that, but also share what I've learned with people and have them know what to prepare for. What are the joys? What are the challenges of being trans in medicine? Something that I didn't have access to when I first applied. Um, From there, what made you actively decide to write a book specifically rather than like a string of articles or a podcast or a TV show or something? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to make a TV show if I had the chance, but um, maybe someday in the future, maybe someday. Um, I started off actually writing a LGBT guidebook to my school. So my school is really great in that they have what's called a blue book. Um, It's a guidebook written by students for students. Um, So people interested in going to the school can read through like 100 pages written by students of what it's like going to our school. Um, Advice of like, you know, what professors um, teach what, who can you approach for research, anything like that. And so I ended up noticing that there were a lot of like places within that that could have used queer specific instruction. And so I based a new guidebook off that template and it's called The Rainbow Book, um, which is now published on my school's admission website. And that had things like how to register your pronouns with the school, how to um, find your research opportunities in trans health, how to create projects, how to meet other people in the community, things like that. And we got amazing feedback on that. Um, really from everyone, like faculty was very supportive, classmates were really supportive, and a lot, a lot of incoming students and applicants gave feedback like that this was really important to them. They'd never seen this anywhere else. And I come from an art background. I was an art student before medical school um, and a writing background. And in my experience, I was particularly inspired by medical memoirs. So I wanted to do less of a kind of official, uh, formal version of writing and do something more creative that is more accessible to everyone. I think people relate to storytelling a lot better than reading through like a hundred pages of, you know, bullet points of how to do this or that. So 
So that was my inspiration. I know I kind of uh, went on as a long story, but that's where it came from. To uh, summarize, like you just kind of uh, um, started writing because that's what was like practically available to you. Um, also, just, you know, for like the general, it's also like the most accessible, I guess. Like you can just start writing without, you know, needing to buy recording equipment, without registering a domain, without... I don't know, whatever. Um, so yeah, but 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 before we before we drag this out any longer, let's actually get some music going. You've sent me an entire list of uh, of, of of different acts and artists to play, so I kind of narrowed it down. The first one, uh, I'm very happy I was able to include this on the show, is "Love Today" by Mika. Everybody's gonna love today, gonna love today, gonna love today. So yeah, live in Cartoon Motion, an iconic album, uh, 2007. Um, this is your choice as much as it is mine because you know 2007 was just a major music year for me. Um, but why did you decided it should have a place in this podcast? Yeah, so for me, 2007, also around that time, I started high school. Um, I was really coming to understand like what gender was, what sexuality was, um, exploring who I was. I think 2007 was actually the first time I may have heard the term bisexual, like the first time in my life. Um, and I didn't identify as that immediately. I do now, but um, I had it kind of percolating in there. And I remember there were rumors about Mika being queer, being gay, being bisexual. Um, and a lot of Mika's music was about like, um, feeling a little bit like an outcast, feeling a little weird, um, but at the same time being so inclusive and loving. Um, and that really spoke to me as someone who's trying to figure out like, who do I love? What do I love? And being like, I kind of, everyone is awesome and amazing. Um, so for me, Love Today was like this beautiful, uplifting song from maybe a queer person, maybe not, which is exactly how I felt at that time. That was like, you know, just so looking at the good side of being queer to me. Um, I think a lot of 
queer media, especially in the early 2000s, was very focused on how tragic it was to be queer in many ways. Um, there's a really popular argument of like, oh, I was born this way, it's not my fault. Um, as though queerness isn't something you would choose. And I felt like Mika just encapsulated this like wonderful joy that I really wanted to experience in pursuing my queer journey. Um, then the obvious next question would be, did you achieve that colorful happiness? Yeah, <laughs> I would say that I did. Um, I think that being queer is one of the biggest joys and privileges in my life. And, you know, I don't know if I was born this way or not, but I would definitely choose it. I think I do actively choose it every day, not just in terms of like who I am attracted to, but really in terms of like my community engagement, the way I look at things through a queer lens. I think it's such a beautiful world and powerful history. And everywhere I go, I meet queer people and we have this incredible instant bond. So yeah, I would say absolutely I experienced that. And, um, you know, from there, um, Mika appealing to you because of a rumored type of uh, queerness. Is that something you from there pursued? Like, were you trying to find more artists that would fit that same description or same vibe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of queer people go through this where they start out as like, quote unquote, allies, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm just I'm just really good friends with queer people. And I just really support their rights, which is great. I mean, people are really like that, but like I was not, I was really just very queer and and not ready to, you know, embrace that. So I absolutely, I think I sought out a lot of queer artists in the name of just like, you know, queer music is great. A lot of our music that we listen to over time has been either, you know, from queer music, inspired by queer music, appropriated from queer music. I think ballroom history is like a huge uh, part of queer music. And that's like from my home city of New York City in many ways. So absolutely, yeah, I pursued a lot of queer music and I wanted to know what it'd be like to be in the community um, looking at uh, famous kind of queer musicians or musicians who are famous in queer spheres like Annie DeFranco um, and Dar Williams and stuff like that. I, um, I'm really latching on to what you, uh, what you said at the beginning there, like the... Oh, I don't know. I'm just not an asshole to queer people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm gay, you know, that type of stuff. Because I, I definitely was exactly like that when I discovered Mika. It's like, you know, people rumor that there is a gay peer and that, that, that at least one in five people is queer. And I'm sitting here in like my high school uh, class with like my five friends, which means that at least one of our friends would be queer, maybe. Well, I guess statistically, I wouldn't mind being it and that should definitely have been a clue but yeah uh, um, enough about me how, how how did your taste in music develop over over time like was mika so to say a um cornerstone in your musical development oh yeah i mean i think my music taste like from childhood was very very broad um we'll maybe get into this a little further in the podcast, but I kind of came from a background of very mixed cultures. So there was Jewish music, Cuban music, um, English rock and roll, um, and American R&B, all sorts of things that I really loved. And I think when I was exploring my queerness, I kind of honed in um, on a lot of folk music and pop music, um, because that was kind of where I heard lyrics that were more risque, perhaps. I don't really want to say, you know, being queer is risque, but I think they were just uh, maybe not so in line with like mainstream heteronormativity. 
and there was more allowance for being queer in those songs. So I definitely think that Mika is like this pop icon um, funneled a lot of my music taste from there, especially like soon after it was like Lady Gaga's um, Time to Shine. And that was huge for me. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think today I still have such a deep love for pop, um, even though I'm not necessarily like the bright, happy, poppy person <laughs> that I was <laughs> a teenager. I would say I'd describe myself more as like perhaps a art alt rock person, but um, it, yeah, it speaks to me. I mean, I think it's, it's just fun and lovely and it, it still makes me happy to listen to it. I mean, if you listen to Mika's more recent albums, he also isn't the same happy, shiny person that he was in 2007. So, you know, who, I guess that there's another parallel. And uh, there is even a third parallel in that sense to between you and Mika, because he is also from a very cultural, uh, culturally diverse background, like being Lebanese and also like French and like born and raised in the United kingdom and like now he's like living in italy uh where, where he's going to be the host for the eurovision song contest so i'm excited about that but you know um i digress um could you could you elaborate on um on your, on your culturally mixed uh background like what what did that mean for you your queerness your music your general being yeah oh wow that's such a big real question um so my background's my mother is a Cuban refugee. Um, our family initially way, way back in like 1300s, 1400s came from Spain. Um, and then at some point during the Crusades ended up in Cuba and then just being Jewish and involved in Jewish life ended up in uh, Lithuania and Vilnius, um, places of like kind of Jewish studies and hotspots of culture. And so during the Holocaust, um, my family gathered in Cuba from Lithuania, although we still had relatives in Cuba all the way back from Spain. And then after that, uh, as Fidel rose to power, they came to America. So I was the first born American child in my family. Um, and then on my father's side, uh, they're all English. So um, I have that. And I think my, my mom just loves traveling. So I was in Europe a lot as a child growing up. Um, as well as in America, as well as in a lot of um, South American, Central American places, because we didn't necessarily go back to Cuba. I've never actually been, although I hope to go. But um, she wanted me to have that connection to just Latinx people, to Spanish, um, to cultural foods, things like that. My uh, particular backgrounds from the Cuban side um, were called Cubanos, which is Jewish Cubans or Julios Cubanos. Um, this is a very small population. There's almost none left in Cuba, but about a couple thousand in Miami right now. Um, and we've always been Jewish, always been Cuban. And this is really an interesting cultural mix because I remember, for example, like growing up, um, certainly hearing mixtures of music, kind of like uh, Sephardi music, which is more Latinx in sound and has its own language called Ladino. Um, so if you know Yiddish, that's kind of the um, Jewish language that was created in Eastern Europe and Ladino is the one created um, more in South and Central America. So I heard both growing up and I, I ate both cuisines, which was really the best part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, specifically interested in uh, Yiddish because um, with my knowledge of like German, I can make out certain mm. words. Uh, like I, I, I can't translate direct phrases, but you know, my with my limited knowledge uh, of of Yiddish, I can make up like some some parts. Like, do do you speak Yiddish at all? 
I speak Yiddish phrases. Um, I really spoke Hebrew more growing up. It was much more accessible than Yiddish was, which is mostly used in like more Orthodox communities. But certainly, I mean, there are phrases that I always grew up with, um, like Shana Medele, who's kind of my sweetheart, my darling. Agazunten um, Kop, uh, which is uh, like good luck to you, um, really luck in your cup, <laughs> literally. Um, so yeah, there are definitely phrases. And I think also being in New York uh, has a lot of Yiddish just intertwined with everyday language. Just even if you're not Jewish, there's a lot of like schmuck and schmutz and things like that. I'm specifically like th that that phrase, uh, that phrase already, uh, like and gesunden den Kopf, like that, mm. like to me that sounds like like health in your head because you know German Kopf. Mm -hmm. So I'm not entirely sure if that if that if I'm like wrongly translating here, but I definitely knew enough to understand that, which I'm very proud of. Um, <laughs> you uh, you also selected a uh, Yiddish track we're going to play later, but for now, like um, the queer language in Yiddish is that there at all? How do you how do you go about these things? Yeah, so I think it is there. My experience is more with Hebrew. Um, than Yiddish in terms of queerness. I, I think Yiddish is a very funky, fun language in general with a lot of nuances that it kind of lends itself to queerness because I think queerness is kind of fun and funky and nuanced. And I think really Yiddish as a queer language has, in my experience, evolved mostly in America with Jews who actually come from similar backgrounds to me, um, not necessarily Orthodox Jews, but Jews who grew up in a Yiddish-speaking environments but also were kind of Americanized and gained a sense of American queerness um, and integrated that with their culture. So I only know, you know, a few queer words in Yiddish, but in Hebrew, I know there's um, a lot of different movements for how to address these languages that are very binary in speech. So a lot of things, you know, like nouns are assigned male or female. Um, and in Hebrew, what a lot of people are doing is either when they're talking to someone who's non-binary or um, of another gender, they'll switch those um, like gendered endings back and forth as they speak to or about the person. Um, I've also heard in America using the ending OL, which uh, it comes from kol, kol means all. So when you are referring to a group of people, instead of using the masculine ending, which is I am, im, or the feminine ending, which is ot, ot, people use ol. Um, so the way we say guys to mean a group, um, that's kind of a gender neutral version of it in Hebrew. Growing up, uh, speaking mostly Hebrew then, like how was there already like something in the language that spoke to you? Like those nuances that you mentioned, was that already someone, something you were aware of, like in its queer potential? Definitely not growing up. Um, I think that's something I came to as a like very established queer Jew seeking out queer theology and queer spaces. Um, I think it's, in my experience, relatively recent that people are really going into it. I think growing up, I kind of was lucky that I could just switch to English whenever I wanted to be queer and non-binary. Um, I didn't just have to speak to he speak in Hebrew. I mean, it's worth noting, like also a lot of people, most people who speak Hebrew also speak English, um, including in Israel. So I think I, that was kind of my cheat sheet getting around it. Um, but it's really nice now to see more efforts um, being put in. As you um, may or may not have noticed as this uh, conversation went on, like I'm really still searching for what is the backbone of this conversation. Like what, um, 
in the sense that we've got Hebrew, that we talked about Yiddish, there is the Cuban aspect of it all, then obviously just the the American part, like there are languages and cultural differences. Like how, how do you make sense of it all? I think I can obviously talk about each one separately um, in depth without necessarily reaching a queer point, but growing up with all these different cultures, I think really opened me up to queerness. Um, there were so many different definitions of gender and sexuality in these different cultures. You know, you have Spanish machismo and you have Yiddish menschlichkeit. And um, what do these different gender roles mean? And I kind of was, uh, I dealt with all of those expectations and norms and along with American ones as well, which I was learning, my family was learning as I was learning. And I think I received not contradictory messages, but just a lot of different messages about gender and sexuality growing up that weren't necessarily queer, but were so um, broad that it allowed me to feel comfortable pursuing more ideas of like, what if my sexuality is this? What if my gender was this? Um, because I grew up with that kind of nebulous, multicultural base. It's like kind of you can you can pick and choose different parts to match your own queer experience. Absolutely. And I think during my life in times where I've identified more with one culture or another, been surrounded by people of different cultures, I do think that my gender and sexuality has kind of changed in some ways to match those. All right. How about we actually go listen to a little bit more, um, like give, give these people a little bit more of a taste of what the Yiddish language sounds like. Track two for today, uh, Apocorism by the Klesmatics. Yes. Um, track two for the day. Apocorism um, by the Clasmatics. I'm probably pronouncing this in a way more English manner just to make things easier for myself. Um, um, but hey, uh, why did you select these? What, why, why did you select the Clasmatics for today? So the Clasmatics are kind of, I guess, when I think of like queerness in America and Jewishness, um, they're a great combination for me. And the fact that they do songs in Yiddish, um, I think it's so wonderful and important. There are a lot of Jews who do queer music, but it's not in kind of the language of our people, you might say. So for me, seeing that combination was really important. I definitely want to share it with people. Uh, people say Yiddish is kind of this dying language. And I think that it can very much be adapted and is being adapted to modern times. Um, and that includes queerness. So I wanted to give an example. It, it kind of feels like home when I listen to it. 
Yeah, it's uh, it. The reason why it stuck out uh, stood out to me. Um, you sent me about twelve songs to pick from for this for this episode, um, but the Clasmatics were the only one where you like give a little bit of a description. So that made me think, hey, this is definitely something we need to talk about. Um, is there also a specific reason why you chose Epicurism instead of any other track? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the songs that is a little more raunchy, a little more uh, out there. It kind of sings about things that people might not expect from traditional religious music. Um, and that feels very queer to me as well. Moving on to like the real thick of the episode, um, we're going to talk about healthcare. Um, let's start at the beginning. Why did you... Why did you decide to uh, study medicine in the first place? So I know I always kind of, even as a very small child, I loved uh, mysteries and figuring out puzzles. Um, and I was actually wanted to be a detective, but my mother was like, you know, people will come after you for that. So maybe don't. <laughs> um, and I think my Jewish background actually really got me involved in health uh, from a social justice perspective. That was very, very important to me. And I think in high school is really when I decided I wanted to do medicine. And that also came from a very queer place because I was realizing the ways in which social justice was present and not present in our society. And queerness was a huge one and queer health was a huge part of that. Even in high school, I was so aware um, through media and through my friends um, and through the lack of queer elders of how much uh, our, our fraught history with medicine has impacted the community. I mean, through the AIDS pandemic, through all of the drama and um, arguments around trans healthcare, um, through all of the things you would see on TV, which was always kind of honestly sex workers who were depressed, who were suicidal, who weren't able to get hormones or surgery. Um, I was exposed to that so young and I knew that it felt wrong and it felt scary and I wanted to do something about it. And when actually House came out, House MD, the TV show, I just thought it was so fun and cool. And then I thought, oh, I could do this, but like in a queer way. And that really set nice. me on the track. How would you describe to me, a uninformed European, what your um, experiences with like trans healthcare in the United States? My experience with trans healthcare is not great. Um, Shocker. I think yes, right. <laughs> it may surprise you to learn. I think it's what we see in media is very representative of what we end up receiving in healthcare. I think that the more arguments in media there are around being trans, the more it's reflected in the healthcare we receive or don't receive, such as conversion therapy, for example. A lot, a lot of places don't actually have good information on vocabulary that's important to the trans community. They don't have good information on uh, what body dysphoria is, what it means. Um, I think a lot of people get their information on trans people from the media because there isn't really set official guidelines for queer education and especially trans health education. A lot of schools um, don't have any queer education in their medical ed curriculum and schools that do have it have maybe one hour out of four years. So providers are learning about trans healthcare from the media and media says a lot of wrong things about trans people. Um, so my experience in receiving trans healthcare has been unfortunately fraught even in a lot of queer friendly or queer centers um, where there'll be things as simple as having 
a list of genders on the intake form that just doesn't include uh, my gender on it or just refers to transgender as a gender, um, which is not necessarily true for a lot of people. It's more of an adjective. Um, ah, yes, so the three genders. The three genders, male, female, trans. <laughs> so, um, I even had the uh, bisexual gender once on an interview. <laughs> a discovery for me. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it's been unfortunately quite difficult. That said, I do think that it is phenomenally quickly getting better. Um, just in the few years that I've been in medical school, I have seen kind of trans healthcare explode. There's so much more awareness. There's so many trans students who are speaking up. Um, there's a new organization nationally that was created, I think, in 2018 called the Medical Student Pride Alliance, which um, really is huge in the push for accurate education on queer people, both as providers, as students, as patients. Um, so it's definitely getting better. And I hope eventually that trans health won't be its own separate thing. And it'll be a thing that every layperson, every student, every provider is relatively educated and knowledgeable about. Uh, how accessible is it? I think that really depends on the state. Um, in New York City, I know, for example, like Medicaid covers a lot of uh, trans specific health care, like top surgery, things like that. Um, in other states, it might not cover it at all. I will say even in New York City, I've had patients have a huge amount of difficulty going to a trans-affirming clinic, being prescribed trans-related medications, um, for example, receiving uh, testosterone and needing syringes and needles in order to take it. And while it's all approved, it goes through their doctor, it goes through their insurance, they'll get to the pharmacy and things aren't filled. Or it'll go through the doctor and the pharmacy will fill it, but the insurance will have an issue. Or the insurance is good and the pharmacy is good and you get switched to a new doctor and the new doctor has an issue. So I think it is extremely inaccessible, especially because um, there's so many hoops that trans people are made to jump through that are really arbitrary and subjective based on who you're speaking with, such as how long do you need to live as like, quote unquote, a trans person before you can get top surgery? Do you need to take hormones before it in order to be eligible for top surgery or after it? Um, do you need to be out at work or out at school or out to your family? These are like random criteria that get thrown out and used kind of willy nilly. Um, and that I think trans people deal with these ever moving goalposts in trying to get healthcare. So I would say really not accessible at all, especially for people who are not educated in how to navigate insurance and multiple doctors and multiple pharmacies. And that's, you know, all, all of that. And then there's the price tag. Yes. I mean, if your insurance doesn't pay for all of it, which would be wonderful if it does, but yeah, there absolutely is a price tag, both in money and in time and in energy. Um, it's, it's quite a lot and it's constant. You don't just get prescribed testosterone one time and you're good. Um, you have to every single month get re-prescribed and check in again. And, you know, maybe you need regular blood work, things like that. So it is quite costly. What advice would you give to like trans people listening to this? Um, not sure how to navigate like insurances and doctors and GPs and specialists and everything else. Yeah. Um, it's difficult. I think a lot of trans people have had to become medical experts um, on their own. I've seen a lot of trans patients actively educating their providers on what to do. And I don't think it is ever the duty of the oppressed to educate the oppressors or the privileged. But unfortunately, it is a reality um, that a lot of trans people face. And I think that a way to prepare for that is by 
finding others in the trans community who have gone through whatever um, healthcare you're seeking in the past. And I think that those people through experience will have the absolute best advice on what to pursue. And if, if you don't have that community, um, I would say looking up WPATH guidelines, um, that is, they're one of a big medical organization that looks at trans healthcare and creates trans healthcare guidelines to kind of find out like what is kind of healthcare is available, what are the guidelines for it. Physicians might not know about it. So if you want to print it out and bring it to the office, um, definitely recommend that. I would encourage trans patients to know that they have a right to advocate. They have a right to receive their healthcare and it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be unsure. Doctors are here to assure us and to teach us and to help us. And even if they aren't, trans healthcare is something that everyone is owed. So prepare yourself as much as you can. Uh, I would say educationally, mentally, and going to a physician's office and try and find someone queer friendly as much as you can. Queer centers are great for it, but there's also websites like Psychology Today, which can filter by queer friendly um, physicians and things like that. So, um, hey, surprise, surprise, there isn't a step-by-step guide for this. Um, but uh, there is one thing that really um, stood out to me, which uh, is you mentioned specific queer uh, centers, like uh, centers specifically aimed towards giving trans people the care they deserve, which uh, in the Netherlands, as far as I know, isn't really a thing because, you know, even if there is this one startup healthcare center specifically aimed at trans people, it goes bankrupt within a couple of years uh, because mm. they simply can't compete with the, you know, government funded hospitals. Um, mm. Would you in that sense say you've got better options there? I I suppose in some ways, I mean, I really can't speak to your healthcare system, but I do think that um, we do have queer centers that are up and running and very well-funded. Um, we have a lot that are not well-funded and a lot that pop up and shut down. Uh, but in the major cities, you know, New York City has Callan Lord, Chicago has Howard Brown, uh, San Francisco has UCSF, and Boston has Fenway Health. These are like nationally known organizations that I'm positive are not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think part of it is that there is such a need that you know, when patients want to get appointments at these centers, it can take upwards of two years um, to get seen for, you know, what you want to be seen for because it's so overbooked. So I think they actually are doing quite well because there's a huge need. They have a lot of people to treat. And luckily in, in bigger cities, more liberal centers, there are grants available and there are ways to get fundraising. I'm 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 going to I'm going to say something controversial here just for the sake of just for the sake of the question. So the way it works in the Netherlands to my extent is that um the government is aware of uh the bigger demand for trans healthcare. However, what they then think would be the appropriate reaction is to pump more money into already like binary focused and inherently transphobic institutions like, you know, the the like the example you gave earlier, like literally getting a uh, getting a form where you can only say, hey, I'm an F and I want to change it, want to change this to an M or the other way around. And, you know, and that on top of like the endless uh, waiting lists and a technical monopoly that this one trans health care clinic has. So then, you know, that that being there, like we've got a government uh, funded 
trans healthcare institution compared to the United States where um, where there are healthcare centers that know what they're on about like that know what trans people need that know when to uh, that know that know how to how to act of course all with their um with their with their asterisks to it but but still now here's the controversial bit is the um, better quality of trans healthcare in the United States compared to the Netherlands a positive effect of having a free market healthcare system mm. I have to think on this question for a second. Yeah, of course. Let it simmer. I think that the social circumstances and the cultural history of queerness in America is different. And I don't know that they're necessarily comparable. I think that it might look like queer healthcare is better here. And also we do have capitalism, which defines our healthcare system. But I can't say that if we had for example, socialism here and a socialized healthcare system, that it wouldn't be even better. Yeah, I'm guessing that's the uh, answer you would expect. But then again, you might also get like governments that would pump money in a, you know, transphobic, be it not intentional, um, like a healthcare center, like um, a government putting money in the wrong places. Whereas now those healthcare centers who know what they're doing actually can get the job done. Yeah, I think there's, you could look at it really either way. Um, I think in some ways, capitalism is definitely a boon because not necessarily for trans people yet, a lot of trans people for multiple reasons are uh, relegated to lower socioeconomic status. But certainly as queer people gain more money, they gain more influence. That is absolutely true. And we gain better healthcare through that influence. Um, so I mean, looking at when the, the queer rights movement started in America in the 60s, um, we have come so far from then in the ability for gay men, especially, to receive treatment. Um, and, for example, to go see their husbands in the hospital when they're sick. That wasn't a thing. So money has been a huge driving factor behind that because uh, when people know a population can pay, they will invest in that population. On the other hand, I think that a lot of uh, capitalistic tendencies towards big business has hindered the pursuit of queer health because a lot of people say, oh, well, there's not enough queer people. There's not enough trans people. So we don't really need to provide care for them. We're not getting money from providing care for them. I want to um, refer to what you said before about, uh, is it better to put money into this pre-existing healthcare system that has been historically transphobic, that has these presently transphobic systems, or is it better to just create new clinics by trans people, for trans people altogether. Um, and I think in my ideal world, we could put it into these already established institutions so that trans people don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, and we could send these money to these really huge, famous hospitals, to rural hospitals, to everywhere, um, and just provide queer healthcare there. I don't think queer healthcare should be separate from healthcare. Um, but realistically, I know that I am much more comfortable getting healthcare in a queer center. Um, and I think because our mainstream healthcare system is not there yet, we need these these other ones, these separate institutions as a stopgap until our mainstream system is good enough. Um, and I do want to plug just a book here, um, The Care We Dream Of by Zena Sharman is actually an entire book by queer people talking about what their ideal healthcare system would look like and exploring that exact question. All right. We're going to put a, put a link to that book in the show notes. Um I'm 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 really digging the um 
Like the, the, the this is just basically like a thought experiment, and let there be no mistake. We do not support capitalism on this podcast. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to I just want to have that out there. <laughs> um, no, but uh, that actually gave me a great reason to uh, ask you um, with a book that describe that that has a bunch of queer people that would describe their perfect healthcare system. What would what would you hope the perfect healthcare system would look like? Well, it's a very I, big tr- question, so let's focus that on trans care specifically, but you get my point. Yes, yeah. Um, I think about this a lot. This is a huge part of, of what I'm thinking about when writing my book. Um, what has queer healthcare looked like to me? What do I want it to look like? Um, and I think that I never want to discourage people from having hope in our system and from uh, feeling like they can make a change if they want to make a change. I think you absolutely can. I have made changes to the system Um, But personally, I don't feel that it is possible for our American healthcare system to ever be truly not transphobic. I think that the basis of medicalization of gender and of sexuality is so deeply rooted in our institutions that I don't know that we can separate it out. I don't think if we do, it'll happen in my lifetime. And again, I don't mean that to discourage people from going into medicine, from trying to make changes to medicine. There's still many ways I think it can get better. But I don't think ultimately it is possible to create a system or to, to would, I think, I don't think ultimately it is possible to take this system, which was expressly created in many ways to oppress queer people and trans people and turn it into something that empowers them. I think people always talk about the system being broken, um, but I don't think it is. I think the system is working exactly as it intended to, and we are fighting against it. Um, and that's why it seems broken, but it's not. I think it's so resilient in its oppression that it is doing exactly what it's been doing for the last couple hundred years. Yeah, that applies for for healthcare, but also like for capitalism at large. Uh, I, I I think we need a breather after all of this heavy heavy conversation. Uh, this 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 heavy talk about medical healthcare and and and, and everything else. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to play because, uh, as mentioned before, you mentioned and you sent me an entire list. Uh, but in the, you know the best live in, in in the category best concert experience, I don't know which one of these artists you've actually seen live. So should I just drop something and press play, or what are we gonna do here? Oh, um, I have to take a look at the list again. Okay, so I have seen, um, I have not seen the original Rent cast, but I have seen Rent, but it's a musical, so it's not really a concert. Um, I, I haven't seen most of these people live. I've seen like concerts that cover these, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, so like Iowa by Dar Williams, I've seen folk concerts constantly that play that one, though I haven't seen Dar Williams play it themselves. All right, let's um, let's 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 go with the rent one because that's the one I actually had lined up for um, for now. Track three for today: uh, best concert experience, though technically not a concert, but whatever. I'll cover you by the rent cast. When they said you can't buy love 
Now I know you can rent it A new lease, you are my love For life, be my life Just slip me on I'll be your blanket Wherever, whatever I'll be your coat When they said you can't buy love Now I know you can rent it A new lease you are my love For um, so you uh, have seen Rand the musical, though I'm guessing it was not with this exact cast. Could you could you paint the picture for me? Yeah, so Rent, very near and dear to my heart. Um, I think one of the earliest musicals I remember really engaging in. Uh, when I was coming out, Rent was like the thing you had to see as a queer person. It was like Rent and the L word and Queers Folk. <laughs> They were kind of these three things that we had um, that every single queer had to watch. And speaking of queer joy, I think Rent um, for me was this incredible experience of meeting my community, being from New York City, being growing up near Alphabet City where Rent took place, um, growing up amongst artists. My mother owned an art gallery and Uh, we worked a lot with street artists and I made my own art and sold it on the street. It felt watching this like this was my community that I knew and telling people like, oh, do you like Rent? Have you seen Rent? Was definitely a queer code um, when I was coming out. It was very much like if other teenagers were like, yes, I love Rent. You're like, I'm in. That's the queers. So I think Rent, is, it's very kind of gives you all the emotions. It's a roller coaster. It's about the AIDS crisis, but it's also about how people persisted, how love persisted through that crisis. And I think that speaking of queer joy, like it, there was so much triumph in not necessarily having survived, but having existed in the moments queerly and beautifully. And whether that was long-term or that was just a second, it was powerful and meaningful. And especially as I was kind of coming to terms with an identity as bisexual, which everyone was like, oh, it's just a phase. Um, Rent helped me find meaning in thinking, okay, if it's a phase, that's fine. It's still meaningful to me. It's still powerful to me. Um, so Rent was huge for me in that way. And with that, is there also a specific reason why you chose I'll Cover You? So I'll Cover You is the song I always cry at. <laughs> um, and I think it is the earliest song I can remember that is just fully unapologetically queer. Um, I'll Cover You is about these two partners and just this deep, intense love they have for each other um, through life and through illness and through death and through rebirth. And for me, that was so powerful and so beautiful. And it was the first time I'd seen this queer couple um, portrayed not only as dramatic and traumatic, but also as joyful and as legitimate and in some ways even more legitimate, I guess, than a lot of straight relationships I'd seen on TV and and in musicals. It was this, uh, you know, the same way that soulmates would meet in Disney movies. I think I'll Cover You was the kind of like uh, wonderful world or no, was it I'll Cover You was the whole uh, a whole new world song um, from Aladdin. It was like the rent version of that, that song when these two souls meet and they realize they're meant for each other um, and it's queer. And that was really, really impactful so when you um when when you saw this musical like 
in the in the flesh, so to speak. Um, what was that experience like? Oh my goodness, it was electrifying. Um, I think I still remember kind of this feeling of intense excitement and nerdiness, definitely, um, and like love for musical theater and excitement that like knowing kind of musical theater was queer, but not knowing how and thinking, oh, maybe this is my people. Um, and I'm not necessarily in the queer theater community now, but I have such a strong love for it because it did introduce me to queer culture. And I knew when I saw Rent, I remember thinking like, this is, this is the start of something big. Um, and it was, it was, it was incredible. It was so fun. <laughs> There may or may not be a link to Rent here because, um, I'm not that familiar with, with, with the play, but, um, do you know a positive example of the way queer medical issues are portrayed in any type of media fiction preferably well i will actually say in rent that they have a a whole song that involves um an azt break people breaking to take their hiv and aids medication um which was the first time i'd actually heard of medication for um hiv for aids so that was part of rent and in rent it was portrayed as a kind of normal uh but you know maybe difficult reality, but certainly something that everyone uh, went through. And I think that Rent did a great job of that, actually, speaking of. Um, in terms of queer healthcare and other media, I can think of many bad examples, unfortunately. Um, off the top of my head, I really can't think of any good ones, especially ones that aren't, um, it's usually more official, like a documentary um, that a queer person has embarked on to talk about what actually is out there. But I think sensationalized media very much focuses on the negatives um, of healthcare and especially of trans healthcare. So they look a lot, for example, at uh, trans people who like, quote unquote, regret transitioning, trans people who were coerced into transitioning. Um, they'll look at, at specific examples that are not necessarily representative of everyone's experience or even the majority's experience and portray it as something that it's not. Yeah, I guess that also like contributes to the entire over-medicalization of trans issues, like where there's always a focus on medical issues instead of social ones. How do you approach that hyperfixation on medical issues as a medical student? It's a great question. I think it is difficult um, to separate the medicalization of gender from seeing someone in a medical context, but I certainly think it's doable. Um, there's something called trans broken arm syndrome, which is when a trans person goes to the doctor, they have a broken arm and, you know, they're like, doctor, fix my broken arm. Uh, also I'm trans. And the doctor says, oh, oh no. Like, do you want to talk about that? Do you want to do something about that? Are you on hormones? How do you feel? Is it weird? And they're like, my arm hurts. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. And the doctor just focuses on the trans part. So I think in trying to demedicalize the trans part, I will only focus on people's gender and orientation in as much as they focus on it. Uh, I think it's good patient care in general to reflect back the patient's priorities, but I especially have an eye to it when it is a queer person. And if they don't want to talk about it, that's fine. If they do want to talk about it, that's fine. I don't assume if they do want to talk about it that it's for a medical reason. It could be for a social reason. It could be for anything. Um, it could be just for developing our relationship um, and building trust with a provider. So I think that's a crucial part of it. It's just not automatically medicalizing gender until the patient or if the patient wants to do that themselves and then only doing it to the extent that they do it. 
Yeah, I'm uh, glad you brought up the trans broken arm uh, syndrome because I had to explain that concept to my psychiatrist while trying to get some goddamn sertraline. So, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's 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 all very relatable. Um, but you know, um, there is also like your uh, like you're you're definitely eager to learn about all of these things. So, how do you go about carefully? approaching trans healthcare issues without like going over uh, or, or going beyond anyone's boundaries? Um, I think a lot of my trans health education has actually come from cis people for better or for worse. And I'm talking specifically about uh, quote unquote official medical education um, has come from cis people. So I've, I've volunteered in trans clinics and shadowed doctors who treat trans people um, and I've read a lot of research papers and I read a lot of like op-eds and other articles that get posted online. Um, but I think that ultimately my knowledge of the queer experience comes from friends and other people in my community, um, not necessarily from my patients, because I don't want to put that burden on them. I don't want them to have to explain anything to me, um, you know, unless they're really excited to do so. Uh, I, I try and learn on my own. And luckily, I am in a position where I'm involved in a lot of different trans communities, um, in a lot of different areas with a lot of different identities and people. And I've built these relationships to the point where I feel very comfortable asking them. And I, I know that when I'm asking as a friend, there's not the power dynamic of asking as a medical student. Um, so they are always comfortable being like, well, I don't want to talk about that right now. Or like, no thanks, you know that they're also comfortable telling me the good and the bad. I, I try to come in with no judgment and with no ego. So if someone wants to like, honestly, like talk shit about medical students and trans health, uh, that's for me a huge learning opportunity. Um, so that's the way I go about it. What's your, what is your personal goal in like your medical career? So I do want to go into trans health if that wasn't obvious. Oh, really? <laughs> Yes. I'm just really swerving here. Um, I think my goal is really to provide the best affirming care that I can, the most culturally competent care that I can. And I think luckily that's something you can do in any field. Um, I think that one of the issues actually in trans healthcare is that everyone thinks it's like uh, adolescence care, it's pediatrics care. And kind of when trans people get older, they don't really get targeted healthcare in the same way. So people forget almost like trans people exist past the time they need puberty blockers. Um, so I personally would love to do transgender healthcare for older people. Um, I'm looking at internal medicine. I'm also looking at combined internal medicine, dermatology residencies, because a lot of trans people are on hormones, for example, that affects their skin. Um, I want to do something holistic and something that allows me to work with the person and uh, diagnose a person and treat the person in a social way and in a cultural way and in a medical way. I think with that ambition, it's time to wrap up the show. If you want to support this show, you can do so through patreon.com slash queer sounds. You can uh, give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, at Queer Sounds Pod. Uh, if that's all too much work, uh, you can just mention it casually, you know, in conversation, like when a friend asks, hey, do you have a cool podcast to listen to? Well, yeah, we've talked, there's this podcast, it's called Queer Sounds. We talk about healthcare for an hour. Also, there is some Mika thrown in there just for the fun of it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, that that's something I would really appreciate. For now, we're going to listen to the last track of the day, 
which is going to be, Davey, do you have any idea? Ooh, okay. Let's make the last track of the day. Uh, I'm going to absolutely butcher it. Tout le monde. I don't know by so my. Um, it's a French song. It, the music video is incredible. It talks about gender and expectations and what that's like. I think it's a great, cheerful, but also intense and real song to end on. All right. Last track of the day of the 2013 album Racine Carré, Stromae, Tous les Mêmes. And thank you all for listening. Cheers. Cette fois c'était la dernière Tu peux croire que c'est qu'une crise Mate une dernière fois mon derrière Il est à côté de mes valises Tu diras au revoir à ta mère Elle qui t'idéalise Tu ne vois même pas tout ce que tu perds Avec une autre ce serait pire Quoi toi aussi tu veux finir maintenant C'est le monde à l'envers Moi je le disais pour te faire réagir seulement Toi tu pensais Rendez-vous, rendez-vous, rendez-vous Au prochain règlement Rendez-vous, rendez-vous, rendez-vous sûrement au prochain rêve Facile à dire, je suis gnangnang Et que j'aime trop les blablabla Mais non, 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 c'est important que t'appelles les ragnagnas, tu sais, la vie c'est des enfants. Et comme toujours, c'est pas le bon moment. Ah oui, pour les faire, là tu es présent. Et pour les élever, il y aura des absents. Lorsque je ne serai plus belle, ou du moins au naturel. Arrête, je sais que tu mens. Il n'y a que Kedmos qui est éternel. Manche ou belle, c'est jamais bon. Bête ou belle, c'est jamais bon. Belle ou moi, c'est jamais bon. Moi ou elle, c'est jamais bon. Rendez-vous, rendez-vous. Tous les mêmes, tous les mêmes, et y'en a marre, tous les mêmes.